0: Welcome to episode 242 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have as our featured guest, regular contributor, attorney Michael Harris, the legal director of the Wildlife Law Program at Friends of Animals. And we talk with Michael about the barred owl versus the northern spotted owl. Yes, indeed. And the Migratory Bird Treaty, as well as the Endangered Species Act. And some history about the barred owl and spotted owl, too. It's a very fascinating story. And the case that uh, Michael is working on For the last two years has just come to a really important point in front of the Ninth Circuit Court in Portland, Oregon. And he tells us about how he argued that case for the barred owl and even for bigger ethical and moral and legal considerations. Great conversation with attorney Michael Harris today in the program. We also have another wonderfully crafted and beautifully read essay by our resident essayist and associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. That essay is titled, Copy Boy. We have an EW essay by yours truly, titled, Gin, and a poem titled, Pussies. And all of this, as is always the case, will be ensconced within several great tunes. Let's get to it. Episode 242 of Troubadours and Rock Gin, the extreme topography of my psychology makes me feel as though I've been subjected to a frontal lobe lobotomy and the ice tea trembles on the old wood coffee table, four legs and standing still, able, as inanimate as those various renditions of my own persona, Too technical, perhaps, too skeptical, perchance, I am unable or unwilling to advance, as it were. The lascivious blonde buxom debutante purrs lovely latitudes of frankincense and myrrh, and the softness and smell of the genuine animal fur, covers with mortal sin the fantasy of carnal ones. As does my stupor continue, with martini glasses filled with olives and India gin, I still have a deep vastness of everything I can fathom consciously, and unconscious too, I suppose as if to reflect at all is the commitment of sin. And toward the sense that for objective real, I haven't much passed the first few pages, verses, or physical movements gone. Let's everyone instead stay strong by joining the fitting-in sing-along song.
1: First thing we
2: climb a tree And maybe then we talk Or sit silently
1: Listen to our thoughts, the illusions of some day cast in a golden light, no dress rehearsal. This is our life.
0: Michael Harris, is that you?
3: Yes, how are you, EW?
0: Good, thank you once again for being on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. It's uh, been a a few months, but you have some things going on, a regular contributor of the program. Let me, for those who have never heard you and I speak, let me give a little background, not much. Uh, You'll fill in the blanks as we go. But uh, Michael Harris is an attorney and he's the legal director of the Wildlife Law Program at Friends of Animals a fantastic organization. And uh, I believe the organization is, um, the headquarters is is on the East Coast, right? Connecticut, maybe?
3: Yes, in Connecticut.
0: And then you're you're stationed, so to speak. You live out in uh, the Denver area, Denver, Colorado, correct?
3: Yes, I do. It's a wonderful day out here, by the
0: way. Yeah, it's a wonderful day here, too, in northeastern Pennsylvania. Perfect. And uh, what we want to talk about with you today is the... Barred owl versus the spotted owl, so to speak.
3: A very big controversy, for sure.
0: Yes, you were just in front of the Ninth Circuit in Portland, Oregon a couple weeks ago, right?
3: It was. Um, you know, this this is a, 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 a case that, you know, obviously it has legal ramifications and issues, but just huge ethical issues and practical issues. Um, so what we have here are two species that are competing for the same habitat one of those species the barred owl is doing a much better job and as a result it's uh, impacting the potential survivability of uh, the northern spotted owl and so what do you do about that Um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has decided that uh, it's going to choose sides pick the northern spotted owl and I well, we could talk about why here in just a second. I just want to get the controversy sort of teed up for your listeners. Um, but the Fish and Wildlife Service has decided it's going to take the side of the northern spotted owl in this conflict. Um, and I use the word conflict. Uh, probably shouldn't even use it. I mean, I just don't think animals think the way we are. They're not at war with each other. You know, exactly. it's an attempt to grab territory. It, it's it's much more. Uh, uh, Darwinism, instinctual type of behaviors um, that these animals are portraying. Um, you know, one animal's expanding its habitat while the other animal's habitat is is being sh- is being shrunk. Uh, but the Fish and Wildlife Service is posing to um, go in uh, a- a- and sort of, as an experimental basis, um, remove uh, some of the barred owls. And by removal, I mean by getting a shotgun. Using a decoy um, recording to track them and shoot them dead. um, In several portions of the Pacific Northwest. uh, In order to, I guess, prove that if you remove the barred owls, the spotted owls will um, recover slightly. Um, But this story really begins with the northern spotted owl. And some of your listeners may have heard about this owl in the past because it has been one of the most controversial species uh, in this country for a long time because it occupies a very, very unique habitat niche, the old growth forests of the Pacific Northwest.
0: Right. And we used to hear about them back in the 90s where the, it was the spotted owls versus human beings, the more specifically the uh, loggers.
3: That's right. And the reason that these owls probably are in such a sensitive position um, with respect to the barred owls moving in is that they lost so much habitat in the the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s because of human logging in the area. I mean, barred owls, uh, excuse me, spotted owls in the Pacific Northwest, you know, they evolved with that old growth forest. Those forests range from anywhere between 200 and 1,000 years old. And the barn owls sort of was one of the one of the dominant predator species in that ecosystem. Um, and it cannot really survive today outside of old growth forests. It really sort of just got itself into a very narrow niche. And that happens quite often when species like... Uh, you know, particularly we see it a lot with with fish species, with cutthroat trout, where they're sort of the only player in the game for hundreds and hundreds of years. They lose some of that ability to defend off, to defend off you know, intruders or, you know, outside um, uh, animals that are wanting to compete with them for new habitat in space. Uh, they become sort of docile. Um and uh, shyish in ways. We, we've seen this with other species. Um, and so here are spotted owls. They're losing habitat for the last 30 years. They're living in islands of old growth forests. Um, they're already on the Endangered Species Act list. Uh, and here comes this new threat. So let's switch the story to the owl. What What's this threat and why all of a sudden is it relevant? Well, barred owls, they're sort of the opposite of spotted owls. They're very much generalists. Um, They have uh, adapted to a wide range of habitats along the East Coast, where you are, actually. They can be found from Nova Scotia all the way down to Florida and as far inland as um, uh, sort of the Missouri Valley. Mm -hmm. But historically... Both in Canada and in the United States, they couldn't really migrate further to the West because of the Great Plains. Mm. There are no trees. And so even though they're journalists, they need trees um, to to build nests in and to use for, you know, uh, places to forage and to hide out and look for ground critters. So historically um, they were sort of you know pushed back on the other side of the Mississippi and up and down the East Coast but we came along several centuries ago and we started migrating west and as we migrated west we built towns villages cities and when we did that we planted trees and um, the barred owl has just used its natural behavior of migrating where it can migrate to to follow us, basically. Mm. And about the earliest documented barred owls hitting the Northwest uh, Pacific Northwest maybe 40 or 50 years ago, but in very limited numbers. But in the last 20 years, um, they have made that their home. There are probably close to 200,000 barred owls now living in the Pacific Northwest. And that's from Northern California into British Columbia. So they're there and uh, they're not going to go away. Um, And we have this conflict with the spotted owls. So as a, you know, as a more generalist migratory species, you know, they will do what they need to do to occupy an area. And that means maybe, Um, taking over a spotted owl's nest uh, chasing them out of an area where they find uh, good forage and good uh, food sources Uh, on occasion they have been seen fighting spotted owls Um, but the real problem isn't the barn owl as much as the spotted owl that just sees this as a reason to retreat and retreat and retreat and that means that they 're losing um, good uh, good habitat for themselves they 're being consolidated more in, in smaller areas, so they 're not repopulating as much Their natural behaviors you know if they if, if spotted owls are forced into smaller and smaller habitats, their natural instinct is to breed less so they don 't overpopulate their habitat.
0: It's so. interesting. I mean, you look at. Let me just interject. I'm listening to this. Fascinating. First of all, thank you so much. And just pause it. I just want to ask you a question. The mm-hmm. it seems you know the the spotted owl, uh, the, the northern spotted owl. Maybe going back to your reference to Darwinism. Maybe you know survival of the fittest is coming. You know, coming uh, coming into play here, and you know they're they're more docile. They can't handle the competitive. Uh, barred owl coming into their habitat and such. Is that something we should let alone? I mean, initially, I guess we put them on the Endangered Species Act. And this is a whole other issue, so I don't want to get you off track. But initially, I think we put them on the Endangered Species Act, uh, primarily because we we take some of the blame, given our behavior, the human beings, uh, as to why their numbers decreased. But if it's other animals that is now the cause, do we still worry so much about their limited or their shrinking numbers?
3: Well, yeah. So this is where you know we could you know, go to the, both the ethical side and the practical side, and I think you could look at both of those to sort of answer your question. I think from the ethical side, um, it, it sort of does depend on your point of view, right? So if you're a wildlife biologist who spent the last 35 years of your life trying to um, protect northern spotted owls, um, you have, you know, you have a compelling reason to sort of set aside the angst that you have about killing another animal because of how tied you are to the northern spotted owl. Um, And so I think that if you look at it from that very narrow, narrow perspective of, you know, a Fish and Wildlife Service biologist or a northern spotted owl slash old growth forest advocate who has, you know, focused only on that issue for most of your career, and there's a lot of people who have done that uh, in that part of the country. Then it, you know, when I talk to these folks, not one of them says, "Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I would, I just love killing barred owls." I, I think they, it turns their stomach. But their ethical lens is focused on, I can't lose a species that we've worked for so long and so hard to protect. The spotted owl, yeah. The spotted owl. Particularly when there's really no reason to believe that the barred owl is ever going, at this point at least, um, uh, in the foreseeable future, be in peril. Um, And And you're fighting for the barred owl. We're fighting for the barred owl and for a couple reasons. Um, and again, you know, I, I actually – this is one of the few cases where I legitimately ask people, you know, uh, what is your perspective? I mean, <laughs> sh- should we be, um, you know, choosing a side here? Shouldn't we be? There's a lot at stake. But I've come to the conclusion that what we're doing, fighting for the Bart Owl, is right for a couple reasons. The first reason is um, – as strong and compelling as the argument is to try to save the spotted owl. And by the way, we really don't know. I mean, we do know that the the barred owls are impacting the spotted owls, but no one would be able to tell you whether or not they will work this out or not. And whether or not there'll be some cohabitation and so forth. No one could tell you that, of course, Mm -hmm. unless we played it out and, and, and just see what happens. But so, but the first reason, really, is is that, you know, this isn't like us picking up a barred owl, putting it into a cage, driving it to the Pacific Northwest, and either maliciously or accidentally releasing it into the environment, and we have an uh oh moment, right? Mm-hmm. And we this happens, of course, all over the country where people release fish or they release. Animals where they don't belong and they do it for a lot of reasons, sometimes an accident, sometimes because they're just mean people, sometimes because they want to be able to hunt or fish um, that particular species where they live. And so that's a that's a problem that's, you know, clearly something that we need to nip in the bud. It's illegal. We should try to get those animals out there as soon as possible. But this is despite us planting trees, this is about a natural migration as there is. And you have to ask yourself, you know, whether we really play a role in changing the course of nature. It's not, this is going to, scientists tell us, right, with climate change and with severe weather events, that this is going to be happening a lot more in the future. Animals are changing their niches because the weather's changing. And some of them are more sensitive, are going to move quicker than the others, and there's going to be conflicts. In fact, it's interesting, just a week before our argument in the Ninth Circuit over the legality of the barred-out removal program, I read an article that was released, and a number of scientists in the Pacific Northwest had been studying um, some of the impacts of what it was at the 2011, what the earthquake in Japan and the tsunami. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes.
3: Since the tsunami has occurred, 250 plus species of animals that are normally only found in Asia, particularly in Japan, have been found in the Pacific Northwest because they stowed away on all that stuff that was washed out to sea.
0: So, yeah, and you call this, this is going to be a new ecological reality for us. It is. It
3: is. As, As we have climate change, pushing animals around to different habitats and filling different niches, whether we have these severe weather events increasingly where animals are, you know, becoming part of what's being washed out to sea. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, setting aside this very narrow, we really have worked hard to fight the spotted owls. What's our role? in dealing with these things in the future. And are we sort of playing, you know, a godlike role when we're deciding we're going to choose one species over another?
0: Yeah, and and you're looking at the law as a means by which we could govern these challenges, to to a certain extent at least. Uh, And you're concerned, it seems to me, with the way the uh, language in the Migratory Bird Treaty is being interpreted. By the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, it, yes, it, but to the detriment of the barred owl, and and I, I think you see there's a larger concern too. If the interpretation that you take issue with is is uh, supported by the judicial system,
3: yeah. So the, the you know the interesting thing here is that while the protections of the spotted owl have been on the forefront of everybody's agenda for the last thirty years. And the Endangered Species Act has been invoked to protect it. The owl is also a protected species, which sounds probably f- a little weird to people who just heard me say they're not in peril. There's a lot of them. But um, for just historical um, reasons, um, most bird species have been protected. And the reason was is that back uh, in the early 1900s, they were used in such great amounts Ah, uh, migratory birds were for sport, food, clothing purposes, that uh, we saw a number of species that we never thought would ever be vanished from this earth, just gone in a heartbeat, um, because there was no limitation on shooting them. And bird populations, um, you know if you if you decimate a bird population over a course of just a few years of shooting it, it can be very susceptible to disease and all kinds of other things it could just implode the population within a within a very short time so for 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 that reason and for really you know in the 19th century we were pretty naive about wildlife biology and habitat conservation and you know we were just reacting to what was a great concern about migratory bird species a number of countries around the world the united states canada mexico the soviet union um as well as Japan entered into a number of agreements that would that just basically sought to protect and make sure that uh migratory birds of all types were um were um not uh were not killed off um at 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 least not killed off uh, in numbers that would uh result in any um significant impact to the population so so barn owls are protected so that puts this uh this um, controversy into a rather unique a unique situation where you have two different sets of laws that sort of um, are conflicting as well here and protecting one owl and the other is protecting the other owl. Um, So, but I want to say before I talk about, you know, what our take is on, you know, how those laws are implied. One thing that's really important and why this case is important to us is that overall, when you talk about these um, conflicts that are occurring because of species migration, which are you know, indirectly human-caused. You know, whether it's planting trees, whether it's changing the climate, um, there is really no legal structure in place for that. You know, Congress has not, like, adopted a, you know, migratory animal conflict resolution bill. Mm -hmm. Um, So the agencies here are acting on their own. And one thing that really gets us is that the spotted owl, my a barred owl conflict raises so much local concerns, and has you know uh, has the potential to undo a, a history of work in the Pacific Northwest. That the agency is taking on something in a too narrow of a lens, right? What mm-hmm. it's doing yeah. now, deciding that they could choose one species over another, can have great ramifications in the future as this happens more. And it shouldn't be, that type of policy shouldn't be made in such a narrow fashion. We need to say to ourselves, how are we going to handle this type of stuff? What factors are we going to look at? What's the important ethical issues that we will be looking at? What, you know, what it is we want to do in order to develop a system that will ha- let us handle not just the northern spotted out barred out controversy but the next one that happens in the Northern Rockies when some other species gets pushed north because of climate change or or you know or or the, or the 250 species that are now here in the Pacific Northwest from Japan we need a broad structure and um, the, the this isn't helping by just sort of promoting a controversy Um, without a larger policy sort of lens to look at it.
0: So the the narrowness that you speak of, uh, that comes from the interpretation of of some language in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, I think, right? Is that an example of the narrowness in in the way that we look at how we uh, sort of pit one or compare one species to another in terms of protection and habitat?
3: Yeah, so the legal argument is actually just a really simple one, uh, and it has to do with uh, this one sentence in one of the treaties underlying the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, the Mexico Treaty, in which it says, and by the way, so the the Migratory Bird Treaties generally allow um, sustainable levels of hunting, um, food and sport, as well as for um, um, industry and commerce, but of course the barred owl isn't used for any of those. There's just no dispute about it. It's not a game bird, and it has no industrial use. So it doesn't have. So it's it can't be killed under those provisions of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So the one sentence that applies is for scientific use. It actually says for scientific use for propagation or for museums.
0: That's when you can kill them.
3: That's when you can kill a bird that isn't used for sport, food, or commerce. So the Fish and Wildlife Service says, oh, scientific use. We are doing an experiment. We kill barred owls. We see if it helps spotted owls. Of course, other scientists will tell you, "Well, we already know that. So, what's the experiment for?" But putting that aside, that's the rationale. And our argument is, well, that's not how you interpret the laws. You don't interpret statutes like that. You don't interpret treaties like that. Scientific use, on its own, is very broad. If it was, the, if that was the only word, you would be right. But you have to read it in context. Scientific use for propagation or for museums what do those three terms have in common? And our argument is the commonality is that when you take or kill the bird for one of those three things, it's to actually learn about and benefit the bird. So, for instance, museums. Now, remember, this treaty was adopted in in the 1930s. So museums were very much part of the conservation scene. We were learning about species biology, habitat needs, figuring out what families they belong to, what their close relatives were, and so forth. So taking a museum specimen, and even today, I think many museum curators would say they play a, a conservation function. I mean, I've been in many cases in which expert witnesses come from museums. Um, and today, have museums are a big place for DNA research, actually, on species. So, so if you're going to take a bar out for a museum, it's to learn about the science of that bird and hopefully to conserve it if we ever needed to do so. Propagation, breeding habits. I mean, are you taking a bird to learn about the breeding habits of another bird? I think the natural reading of that is that you're trying to learn how the bird breeds, why it's not breeding or to help it breed, maybe even. Do captive breeding in order to make sure that it's conserved in the wild. So, why shouldn't scientific use be read just as narrowly? That the scientific use is to research, study, examine the bird, learn about its biology, its habitat needs, and so forth, and therefore provide some potential benefit to conserve the bird if necessary in the future. The bird you're killing. Not the bird you're killing. Now, here they're not arguing that they're learning anything about barred owls. I mean, the carcasses, if they're even removed from the forest floor, are just disposed of.
0: Right. It's just for the spotted owl that they're killing the barred owl. That's it. To propag- that's, for, for their propagation.
3: And that's right. Yeah. And so, the you know, the argument that we made is that that's just, that's just not an allowable reason under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. You can't read – and their reading of it is um, – The way they define it specifically is that scientific use could be for scientific understanding of the bird itself or the scientific understanding of any other species. And we say, no, that that last part, any other species, that's not how the drafters of the treaties in 1936 intended it to be. So that's the ironic part of it. I'm sure your listeners probably are aware of, you know, the dangers of original intent. (laughs) But in this case, I'm all for original intent. You know, <laughs> 1936. <laughs> they didn't mean to kill for one one bird to help another bird. Yeah, we'll go with
0: original intent on this one. It makes we'll sense.
3: We'll go with the original. T- whatever works. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so the Ninth Circuit. It seems like there are at least two out of the three uh, judges on the panel who were receptive to your argument. And uh, uh, now, I guess you have to wait for their for their decision. And uh, when do you expect that?
3: It's hard to tell
0: yeah
3: we waited we waited almost uh two years just to get the argument, um, so I mean it could be it could be early next year, it could be the end of next year, but um we were really happy with the argument. We feel that we really at least we feel that the judges understood what we were asking them to do to look at those words and to read them in context. Um, the district court, I think, messed that up. She didn't really ever have a chance to understand that we were making that argument. She, she just sort of bought that, well, scientific use is broad. But the Ninth Circuit did seem to understand what we're saying. And you know, that's all you could really ask for at this point and just hope that they agree with you.
0: Well, good luck on that, and then yeah, of course you'll keep us up to date on the developments with this particular case, and we only have a couple minutes left. How about you know we 've talked about several different uh, uh, legal uh, efforts and uh, situ- cases you 've been involved in uh, the mustangs, anything going on with the Bureau of Land Management and the corralling of the mustangs in, in Nevada Is that still pending? Is there anything going on with your supreme uh, your Supreme Court petition uh,
3: yep. Well, our antelope case in the Supreme Court did fail, um, which, you know, was a difficult thing to get the U.S. Supreme Court to take your case. But we've had we're having great success on protecting wild horses throughout the West here in the United States. I mean, we've won, you know, a good half a dozen cases uh, uh, over the last year and a half. Um, I mean, I, I, I think the real problem here is that, you know, we're facing an administration now that's tightening up the budget so much that – it's making the land managers even more desperate. So I'm afraid what we're going to see is a return to slaughter. Oh. No one wants to see that really. And I think, it, you know, I think what we're going to see is it get a lot worse now before it gets better. And, um, you know, we need land reform out here in the West. We need more space for animals and less and, and, you know, less competition with, uh, logging and mineral development and oil and gas and, ranching who'd want to take up every little acre of land for themselves and until we have places for these animals these conflicts are going to get worse as we get administrations that want to cut budgets
0: yeah yeah i i see where you're concerned there and uh i I, i'm sure that'll be more work for you uh (laughs) but uh michael michael harris attorney in case you're just tuning in for the organization Friends of Animals. He's their legal director of the Wildlife Law Program. And uh, it's it's wonderful. I have a lot of listeners who really enjoy when you're on the program. They love the way you present the the uh, situation, the case at hand, and you go through the history and the analysis. And I, too, enjoy it very much. Thank you for being on Troubadours and Rock Antours.
3: No, thank you. And if any of your listeners want to... Tell me how they feel about this I mean this this ethical dilemma is a, a real one, and boy, I would, I'm always asking folks to tell me what they think about it, so feel free to have them email me. Yeah, what's the email? Uh, it's Michael Harris all one word at Friends of animals all one big long word dot org.
0: And talk to you about the ethical concerns in general or the barred owl versus the spotted owl or whatever they have come to mind regarding animal rights.
3: Yeah, that would be awesome. I mean, it's really, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to talk about, um, you know, when we have a, even a, a slight hand in these type of conflicts and how we handle it. So,
0: Well, thank you for enlightening us and for the hard work that you do. It's, it's a pleasure to hear from you periodically on the program.
3: Thanks, EW. I'll talk to you later.
0: Take care. Bye.
1: For so long, now the deed has been done, we shall rise with the sun, spend our time as one. And now there is no sin in anything, it's amazing. I love everything. It's all amazing. I feel new. Do you feel new? I understand when they say we're born again. Cause I've been born again. I'm born again. And it's amazing. It's the best thing. It's glorious. It's life changing. It's amazing, it's the best thing, it's glorious, it's life changing, it's feeling
4: Copy Boy. My mother was a big fan of Lou Grant, the TV show about the crusty newspaper editor played by Ed Asner, who transplanted his character as the crusty news producer from the Mary Tyler Moore show. Whenever there was a newsroom scene in which an editor, crusty or otherwise, yelled, Copy! My mother would say to me, There you are. It was a proud comment not plaintive, like one regularly delivered to her apostate son. Remember when you were an altar boy? I was indeed a copy boy at one of the two family-owned newspapers in our depressed former coal town. Our paper, The Miner, was Republican-leaning, owned by two families, Wasps and Jews, and the other, Democrat-leaning paper, was owned by an Irish family. I didn't care much about the politics at the time. I cared about the romance of the newspaper life, imbibed from old movies like It Happened One Night, and Libeled Lady, and The Front Page, and His Girl Friday, a version of the front page with Cary Grant as the duplicitous editor Walter Burns, and Rosalind Russell as the star reporter Hildy Johnson, whose milk-toast fiancé Ralph Bellamy waits vainly for her to give up. The tabloid life. There were no carry Grants to be found in our newsroom, but it was a lot like the front page, a cast of grizzled, ink-stained wretches and wise-cracking cub reporters searching for a scoop with, in supporting character parts, smarmy politicians and local dignitaries. The newsroom was as rich in wacky characters as any screwball comedy, and it was a democratic, small d workplace, the janitor who emptied overflowing ashtrays and garbage cans filled with crumpled false starts, and the lowly, coffee-fetching copyboy could consider themselves collaborators of the editors and the reporters, if not the publishers, who mainly stayed downstairs and out of sight. (coughs) I must have heard about the job from a friend of a friend, and the interview was low-key, to say the least. The managing editor glanced at me a few times, chomping on his cigar, and scribbled my name and number on the back of an envelope. He started out as a copyboy himself back in the day, when he was also a boy singer, known for his version of Babyface. I got the job, and worked at the paper from high school through college and a summer internship on the obit desk. The newsroom was a smoky, noisy stage. You could hear the clacking of teletype machines, the clatter of two-fingered typing on battered underwoods and smith coronas, and the shouts, murmurs, and raillery of the newsmen. And they were mostly men, except for the two ladies, one young, one not-so-young, who covered the social pages. One ancient retired reporter would visit every night. Widowed or a lifelong bachelor married to the press, he had nowhere else to go now that he wasn't covering City Hall or bantering with politicians and other lowlifes. He would sit at a desk, his fedora at a rakish angle, smoke a cigar, and read the New York City tabloids. He would reminisce with the other old-timers, he mentored the managing editor, clear his throat of phlegm, lodge down there since the golden age of radio, hawk the wad on the floor, and reluctantly leave the newsroom for the pale life outside it. The younger reporters chafed at the old-timers, the city editor in particular, whose tendency to overuse seen in headlines, budget woes seen ahead was parodied in a classic supposed headline, Hitler Seen Dead. These relative youngsters would come back from dinner, break, red-eyed from herbal desserts, and free from oversight from the grown-ups. In addition to keeping tabs on the news, they hung out, mocked everyone in the news, in the newsroom, and in the city, and now and then concocted imaginary news stories, One, about a purported snake race in a burrow, mistakenly made it into the paper, leading to a couple of suspensions and a few reprimands, but a great story to tell forever after. We had a hippie, an intellectual, a malcontent son of the head of advertising, a wild man who downed drugs and booze with Thompson-esque abandon, and, my favorite, a frustrated novelist, The copyboys, another assemblage of oddballs, would lounge at their desks until they sprang into action at the sound of, Copy! We'd race, or mosey, depending on the disposition of the copyboy, to the editor's basket, pick up the story typed on cheap paper and glued together to form the flowing and usually marked up document, a fire, a robbery, a city council meeting. We'd carry the copy to the composing room, where yet another collection of characters would set the paper into type. We'd bring the final typeset pages down to the basement, where the pressmen readied the plates. A copy boy was an integral player in what now seems an ancient ritual, ferrying paper like a carrier pigeon or a fresh-faced rider of the Pony Express. After a night of running copy... Picking up coffee or pizza or hoagies from the restaurants across the street from the paper, chatting with or eavesdropping on the newspaper, the editors and reporters, reading piles of newspapers, the local competition, the New York Times, the Daily News, the Post, the Village Voice. I would head home, the press humming away in the basement. The next day, I would marvel at the folded paper on my porch, delivered by my not-as-glamorous but no less essential colleague, the Paperboy.
5: a perfect day Drink absent in the park And then later When it gets dark We go home Just a perfect day Feed animals in the zoo Then later movie too then go home oh it's such a perfect day i'm glad i spent it with you oh such a perfect day you just keep
0: Pussies, owls barred from habitats most humans don't fathom, yet still though they imagine Adam and Eve, such a peevish way to see and think whilst other species are facing the unforgiving brink, and maybe those northern spotted owls are just entitled species pussies. Thank you And there you have it, episode 242 of Troubadours and Rock Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our good friend and fighter of the good fight, attorney Michael Harris. I also'd like to thank our associate producer, And resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavese, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. And these wonderful musical artists. Stevie Wonder, the tragically hip, one Eskimo, Patty Smith, Tom Petty, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Brentford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. Until next week, enjoy this one. Thanks for listening.